If you're, if you're a guest with us, um, what we do here at Four Oaks is we generally preach through books of the Bible or large sections of Scripture, kind of how we make sure that uh, we're staying on track with, with the Word of God, what God wants to communicate to us, not so much uh, what we think is important, but what God deems is important. And, and we've been preaching through the book of Genesis now. It's hard to believe, church, a little over a year. It's a, it's a series we've called Foundations. It's really fundamentally oriented to this idea that God is the most important reality in the universe. We want to know what it means to lead a God-centered life, to make him the foundation of everything. And just to kind of forecast where we're heading from here, we're going to be preaching through Genesis through the end of the spring, the school year. We're going to take a break. We're going to do something New testament okay, this summer, and just made that up, that word up. But, and then we'll be back in the fall for the stretch run through the end of Genesis. We should finish by the end of the year. That way we can get ready for our 10-year sermon series on Leviticus, and it should be awesome. <laughs> you never know here, right? You never know. A little wiser than that. But anyway, but for today, it is Genesis 26. You know, as we started to learn about the life of Abraham, it was all the way back in Genesis 12 that God gave Abraham a charter and he gave him a commission. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations of the world through you. Through your line, I'm going to raise up a Messiah. Through your line, I'm going to raise up a people. I'm going to raise up a land. And now here's your commission, Abraham. Walk before me. Be faithful to me, Abraham. Be my witness. Walk in faith so that through you and your descendants, I'm going to proclaim the message of who I am to this world, that was his commission. But he also gave Abraham a charter, and and the word charter, we may not be as familiar with it. Think about for a second the Magna Carta. It literally means in Latin, the great charter. So King John and his nobles came together and they all signed a written agreement, a consent that guaranteed to the English people certain liberties or certain privileges that belonged to them by virtue of the fact that they were going to obey and follow the king. Now, in the same way, God signed a charter for Abraham that was to empower him as he went on his mission, and he sealed this charter with a covenant. And the charter was simply this. He said, Abraham, during this commission, here's what I'm going to guarantee you. Here's what I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give to you my very presence. I'm going to give to you myself. In fact, here's what I'm going to do, Abraham. Cut the animals down the middle. I'm going to walk between the pieces. So be it to me if I ever leave you or forsake you in the midst of this commission that I'm giving to you. And it was an awesome spectacle. Remember, we went through that passage. But here we are now 4,000 years later. A living testimony to that promise, that commission that God gave to Abraham. And interestingly, our charter and our commission church is exactly the same thing. And Jesus restates it for us where it finds its ultimate fulfillment in him in Matthew 28 when he says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
Your commission, Christian, is to make disciples, is to proclaim the good news, to live out the good news of the gospel. And it is indeed good news. It is the greatest news that despite our frailties, our brokenness, our alienation, our sinfulness, that God, instead of letting us remain in that place, sent his son to die on a cross so that we might have forgiveness and eternal life and restoration with him. It's an awesome commission, and it's not just merely for the vocational ministers among us. Um, one of our elders, John Stewart, often has often said over the years, you know, pastors, we, we pay you guys to be good, but we're actually good for nothing. And, and it's, it's in actuality... We're all called to be a part of that mission. This was, this was part of the Reformation in Luther. It doesn't matter if you're a homemaker, um, a CEO, a doctor, a lawyer, um, a nurse. It doesn't matter. All of us are called to be on mission. Now, that mission's going to look a little different within the context of our lives. But it is for everyone. And here is our charter. Our charter is that I will go with you, God says. I will be with you to the very end of the age. And what we see in Genesis 26 is this reality on display. We see this taking place in the life of Isaac. Remember, the gospel torch has been passed from Abraham to Isaac. Abraham is off the scene. He is with the Lord. And we know that God had promised amazing things to Abraham and we can assume for a moment, I think, that, God, that Abraham assuredly told Isaac of these promises over and over again. As you parents hopefully are doing with your kids as you're raising them and sharing the gospel with them. And ultimately, we, hope, we, we fully understand Abraham was doing this with Isaac. But understand, in this text, this is the first time that God appears a personally appears a pers- appears personally to Isaac to give him a word. It's because God wants Isaac here at the onset of his life and the in the prime of his youth, so to speak, to begin to orient his life, everything he does, to God's mission. And, and let me tell you why I need this text. And let me tell you why I think we as a church need this text. It's very tempting in our age, in our age of technology and affluence and security and control and individualism and autonomy. It's very tempting to think that the reason we exist is for our families or the reason we exist is for our jobs or the reason we exist is for our careers or our sports or our hobbies or our grandkids, or our marriages, and all of those are crucially important in the right context. But those are not our reason, those not our foundational reason for being, for why God has put us here. Those things are all just vehicles. They are all tools. They are all things that will not have a, an eternal heavenly reality. Those are all things that God has given us in this life to accomplish his mission for us. And this is going to sound a little strange, but my prayer for for us as your pastor this morning is that we will walk out of here this morning with a little bit of what I would call spiritual whiplash. That, that, 
that we'll have to kind of do a double take when we read the story of Isaac, that we'll have to evaluate, that we will have to consider that we, this will be sort of the spiritual smelling salts. You know how they wave these under the boxer's nose when he's lying there on the mat, passed out, and they, they break open the little packet, and I've never smelled one of those things, but it must be terrible, right, to wake him up. Well, God's given us something better. It's his word through his spirit. And I'm really praying that God will awaken our hearts through his spirit for why we are here. Because, just like Isaac, it is so easy to forget. Folks, let's pray this morning before we dive in that God would do exactly this. Heavenly Father, we're asking you to do something that we know we can't do. And that's to, through your spirit, let us breathe in the aroma of your word and be reminded afresh, reminded anew of why we are here. Lord, this life is short. It is a vapor. It is a mist. And at the end of the day, we want to be faithful. We want to be obedient. We want to stand before you one day and have you say, well done, good and faithful servant. You leveraged your life for the most important things. But God, apart from your spirit, it's not going to happen. We're going to be consumed with ourselves and our times and our interests and our lives. And Lord, help us to reapportion things accordingly this morning. Lord, I need your help. Lord, as a church body, as a church family, we need your help. So would you do that for us now in Jesus' name? Amen. Four points, all related to mission. Number one, let's talk about the cost of the mission. Back when I was doing student ministries many moons ago, um, and we would talk about students sharing their testimony, um, we we sort of cautioned against this idea that we frame our testimony as, well, you know, I accepted Jesus, and now I get to have better grades and have more fun. I became captain of my volleyball team, right? And it it doesn't always work that way. We know that there's a cost associated with the gospel. Now, it's a glorious cost. Oh, it's a glorious cost. But there is a cost. And we see this in chapter 26. It says there is a famine in the land, which is typical for that desert climate in Palestine. And typically also of that time was that when there was a famine, everybody headed to Egypt. Because that's where the Nile was. That's where the water was, the produce, the goods. We see this over and over in Scripture. So it's, it's kind of like if you want to go to an amusement park, you go to Orlando or Valdosta, I guess, right? You can do that. Well, if you, want, if you're, you have a famine, you just go to Egypt. That's what you do. And that's what Isaac does. He's not going to sit there and let his family starve, for goodness sake. So he packs up his entourage. They get moving. And on the way, they stop off in a place called Jawar. And that's where God appears to Isaac. And he tells him, he has an explicit instruction. He says, Isaac, don't go. Don't go, don't go to Egypt. That's not the land that I've promised you. That's not where my grace is. My grace is right here. And here we see in verses 3 and 4, he reminds Isaac of his mission. Let's read it it again. He tells Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven 
and will give to your blessing, give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So it says in verse 6, Isaac obeyed. He settled in Gerar. Now, that has got to be the most understated verse um, that we've come, one of the most understated verses we've come across in Genesis, because there is a lot that's packed in to, to that verse 6 where it says, Isaac settled there. We have to understand something that when it comes to this mission that God told him, Isaac, I want you to stay right where you are. This is not like, excuse me, Isaac having his vacation rescheduled, right? Because of the coronavirus. That's not what's going on here. There is a famine in the land. Isaac hasn't escaped the famine. He's just settled down in the famine. Think about how hard this would be just on a personal level. If we're talking about the coronavirus, let's just go there, right? It would be like the coronavirus sweeping through Tallahassee. And if you don't know what the coronavirus is, you are blessed, okay? You were just entirely blessed. But it would be like the coronavirus sweeping through Tallahassee and God telling you, don't take your family out of here, just stay put. I've got bigger purposes for you. I've got a more important mission. I've got a mission that's even going to supersede your security and your safety. Now, let's be honest, as 21st century folks, when we read stuff like that, that just confounds us, right? Somebody might as well be speaking a foreign language. We, we don't even have categories to compute. Pastor Paul, what are, what are you saying? I mean, what are you saying about the cost of the mission and discipleship? I remember when our kids were very little, and I was listening, I was, I was pretending to work out at Premier, and I was listening to a sermon by, by a Southern California pastor named Erwin McManus. And, and he was talking about the cost of the mission and, and going into to foreign lands and these sorts of things, and I was listening to it, and I was like, yeah, 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 that's great, great. Then he narrated this conversation he had with one of his children. And apparently one of his children said, Dad, <clears throat> would you ever put me in harm's way for the gospel? And of course, as I'm just working out, pretending, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm listening to this and, and, and every instinct in me, I didn't even have to, to conjure it up. It was like, no, of course, of course we wouldn't do that to our children. But then what he said next was totally jarring. Dad, would you ever put me in harm's way? And to which he said, of course I would, son. The son was like, okay, that's what I thought. And they just carried on, right? And so, so when we hear things like this, this is where we need the spiritual smelling salts of our life. Isaac stays. And we have to ask what emboldens him? What gives him that confidence? And I think it's found in his charter. Look at verse 3. God says, I will be with you. I think the idea of God's presence, the idea that God is with us, I think it is one of the most underutilized, if I can put it that way, pieces of Christian theology. I don't, I don't think we think about it. I think we take it for granted. It's not even on our radar. We don't even really fully know what it means. Now, maybe we, we're, we're in touch with this idea that God is transcendent, He's above, he's holy, he's awesome, he's majestic, he's sovereign. But we must also, it is equally true that God is with us. He is imminent. He, if you are a Christian, he dwells with you. You've heard me say this before. Even at the point of death, Jesus never abandons you. 
There's not one second of your life in this life or eternity that the Spirit ceases indwelling in you. It is literally true what Paul says, neither life nor death can separate us from the love of Christ. God had to remind Isaac, he has to remind us, I am with you. I'm with you. I haven't abandoned you. I'm not disinterested. I'm not, I'm not ignoring what's happening in your life. I'm, I'm calling you to hard things, but I'm, I'm in you, with you, every step of the way. Because that's what he did for us on the cross, right? That's what he did for us on the cross. We remember the story in Deuteronomy where Moses is confronted with this very choice. Remember, they're heading to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. But the people are rebellion, they're grumbling, and, and God says, you know what, Moses, you're going to have the promised land, take it, but I'm not going with you. Let me ask you a question. Would you, would you rather be in the, quote-unquote, wrong place, but with God, or the right place without him? See, when Moses heard it, what does it say? It said it was a disastrous word. He says, Lord, if you don't go with us, we, we're done. We, we want no part of that. Now, as you and I are reminded this morning of our purpose and our mission, we have to ask before the Lord, just kind of bookmark this, Lord, where do you want me to begin to reorient my, my thinking here? And I'm not even talking about your life right now. That, that's downstream. First of all, we have to have clear vision. We have to understand. We have to have a new set of lenses to be reminded of who we are and why we exist. I was reminded of this the other day. I went in for an eye exam, and, and I have one of those, those, that level of eyesight where they use words like legally blind with me, like apart from my lenses. I think my, my vision is like 1,500 over 20. And I know you could use that um, to your advantage at some point, I'm sure. But anyway, they had me take my glasses off. And, and the lady is like, look at the chart and read the smallest line on the chart. And I'm like, what chart? Like, wh- 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 where is the chart? She's like, you can't, you can't see anything on the chart? I was like, no. She's like, can you not see the top letter? And everybody knows what the top letter is, right? E, everybody knows. I'm like, I am so sorry. I am so blind. But she put those, those little dial, dialed in things and you can see and you're like, oh, okay. There's, there's like, that's what we need. And see, when we see, begin to see the, the, the life through the lens of mission, does it not just like change everything? It just totally re- reprioritizes our life, puts an urgency on things. It bring, brings clarity to things like hospitality and opening our homes. It brings clarity to our worship, to our community groups, to our conversations with our neighbors, to our friends. See, there's, there's a cost. It's a glorious cost, though, because God is with us on this mission. So we see this in the life of Isaac. Let's keep going. Number two, we do see went, went, cowardice in the mission, which I can so easily identify with. It says in verse 6, oh, this is such, again, such a stark contrast. Verse 6, Isaac stays. He's faithful. He settles in. He has faith. And then verse 7 We see that his faith is so easily and quickly replaced by fear. See, again, 
like father, like son. If this story sounds familiar, we've, we've been down this road. Not the point of this sermon, but, but parents, isn't it amazing like how your sin can like just be transmitted through the family like that? They're just always watching. Okay? It happens in community group. It happens in marriage. It happens in parenting. It ha- it's, just, it's just a life of imitation. And we know that this thread of deceit and hiding really was, was part of the legacy of Abraham. And we see this even now as we're studying Jacob and, and Esau. And we're getting to that, that place in this story. But they're traveling in Gerar. And again, he fears for his life. He fears that they're going to kill him and take his wife, Rebekah. And so he gets her to, in his little scheme to say that she is, in fact, his sister. And we have to think for a second, why does Isaac lie here? And, and, and I mean, it's easy enough to say, well, well, Pastor Paul, he's not walking by faith. He's not trusting God. He's, he's you know, he, he values his life. And all that is fundamentally true. But I think if we can get a little bit even upstream from that, Isaac really struggles with something here that I think all of us intuitively struggle with as well. See, he's weighing his peace and his comfort and his ease over the cost, the claims that this mission is making on his life. Church, I got got a confession for you this morning. As, As I'm prepping this morning, I'm really thinking at different points, how can I preach this sermon? Because I'm just like Isaac. I'm just like Isaac. I so often value the opinion of men over the commission that God has given me. It is just so much easier just to be, right? Just no waves. Don't rock the boat. Don't speak up. Don't share your thoughts. Don't take the opportunities God gives. That that might mean this, and this might mean that. In fact, right now, let me just say, and because I know I've, I, I know so many of you, you might be in that very place. You're you're thinking about your own life, and you're starting to get that. You know, you're not getting the peaceful, easy feeling, right? You're getting the painful conviction, regret, and guilt feeling about maybe how you've ordered your life. And let me just say, don't run past that too fast. It's not where we want to stay, but before we can really understand the grace of God that we see in this passage, we have to to settle there and say, God, it's true of me. It's true of me. I, I, I value these things more than I value your mission, than I value the souls of people. And I don't say that to guilt trip you, church, because it's me too. I'm just saying we have to acknowledge the reality of really what we compete, what the, the sort of the competition that's going on in our hearts. And it's only as we do that, that I think we can receive the grace here that God wants us to receive. Because let's look at what happens to, to Isaac in verse eight. It says that, 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 that he's living this lie and we don't know how long this is going on, but we know one day Abimelech's hanging out in his Casbah or wherever, and he's out watching and he's looking and he sees Isaac and Rebecca. And it says here in the in the Hebrew, they were laughing. Now, there's laughing, and then there's, you know what I'm saying? Laughing, right? Do I need to say any more than that? Go home and talk about it over lunch, right? Or whatever. The word literally means to caress 
We don't know exactly, really, what's happening, but we know that whatever Abimelech saw, he knew immediately, uh, that ain't what I do with my sister, right? That, that's, not what, that's not what we do. And so he clearly sees that there's something, you know what I'm saying, going on. Makes the assumption, of course, and he confronts Isaac, and he says, what are you doing? Now, at this point, can you imagine being Isaac? <laughs> How terrified you would be? This man has your... Has, has, your, has his very life in his hands. Think about those times when you and I have been caught in something. Maybe it's a sin, maybe it's a lie, maybe it's a deception. Maybe it's just something we've just kind of swept under the rug and Lord, Lord pray, nobody finds out about that. Or I can kind of keep that one under wraps. Put yourself in that position What I want you to see, though, is that by the providence of God, this is actually a grace not only to Isaac, but it's a grace to Abimelech. See, Abimelech remembers all too well this time with Abraham. Remember when Abraham pulled that stunt and God closed the wombs of all the women in Abimelech's territory and camp? But this time God doesn't let it go that far. He allows Abimelech through his providence, God's providence, to witness this thing. And because of that, he is able to, number one, warn his people. That's a grace. That's a grace to this pagan king. Warn his people. But secondly, he's also able to what? Confront Isaac. And again, we see this as a part of God's gracious providence. See, at this point, Isaac's lack of faith is exposed, his, his cowardice, his deceitfulness. It's out there for everybody to see. And you may say, Pastor Paul, why is that a grace? It's a grace anytime God reveals our sin to us. Because it, it gives us the clearest pathway to repent. That's, that's what love is. God is not love when he allows us to live in sort of duplicity, when he allows us to sort of live in the gray and on the margin and where things are ambiguous and and unclear. And so as God is shining the light of his truth, and some of you are experiencing that in this season, God has a big old spotlight just shining right in your heart, and it feels, let's be honest, awful. It feels painful. It feels uncomfortable. But even in the midst of that, we have to understand this, in fact, is God's grace. And we see this grace in the life of Isaac right here. It says, verse 11, no one touched them, the king says. Nothing that Isaac deserved. Nothing that Isaac had merited or warranted. It's part of his grace, and it's a reminder to us this morning that God still used sinful, fallen people on his mission just like us see while we don't want to run past too quickly where we have sort of shut ourselves off from the mission of god we don't want to dwell there we don't want to live there you've heard me say this before it's not what you've done it's what you do next do the next right thing what does it mean god yes god this is me i am isaac but god what does it mean now to be faithful to be obedient, to move forward. That's the most important thing we can ask this morning. 
That's point number two. Let's point number three. Chafing during the mission. We talk about the cost of the mission. We talk about the cowardice in the mission. Here's the chafing during the mission. Look at verse 12. It says that in response to all this, nonetheless, God blesses Isaac anyway. And it says that he blesses him by giving him material blessings. Now let me just do a sidebar because I think this is really important. Because we see this a good bit in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, particularly in the Old Testament, God used material blessings to show his favor. In, in stark contrast to the world around them, sometimes in the lives of the patriarchs or the kings, we see this with Solomon, God will pour out material blessing. It's part of, of his way of showing his favor for the life of God's people. However, where we get sideways very quickly is when we use a text like this for what we call a health and wealth gospel or a health and wealth theology. In other words, if you just trust God... If you just have enough faith, if you pray hard enough, God will make you well. God will heal you. God will will make you wealthy. God will give you favor. And by the same token, if you're not having favor with God, surely your faith is defective in some way. So, so many have been shipwrecked by that theology. What shall we say in response to it? What's going on? See, I don't think that's what's happening in the text here. First of all, do you know this? When you look at the whole scope of Scripture, some of the most faithful servants in the Bible are poor by any person's standards. There are many, many warnings in Scripture against the desire to be wealthy, to, to, to revel in materialism. Next to the kingdom of God, pre- Jesus preached more about money than anything. But secondly, now understand this, Because we don't have, as much as we don't have a prosperity theology, we also don't have a poverty theology, right? That that the more you mishandle your money, okay, the more blessing you get. That's not true either. See, when, when God does bless people with earthly wealth, remember, the earth is the Lord's, everything in it. It's never, though, for our sake. It's always for his sake. It's always an opportunity to show generosity to show where our ultimate treasure is, to show where our ultimate value is. You see, prosperity theology says, God exists to bless me materially. False. Biblical theology says, I exist to bless God. And whatever he gives me, little or plenty, I'm going to use that. I'm going to leverage that. We, we, we see the gospel displayed in all strata and levels of society. So when we talk about God blessing Isaac, I think that's a super important kind of sidebar to note here. But what we see when God does bless Isaac, two things happen simultaneously. And it's hard to keep these things in tension, but I think we see this all throughout the scripture. Two things happen as people look at the blessings that God has poured on Isaac. First, it stirs up conflict, strife, and envy. But secondly, and sometimes simultaneously, it also engenders respect, admiration, and favor. And we're going we're to see this in the life of Isaac, but what I want to put on your radar for a moment is that when we live on mission, there's going to be some sort of chafing, rubbing, agitation. In other words, when we live faithfully on mission, 
people cannot not respond to that. Right? Sometimes it will be in conflict and disfavor. We, we, we live in a pluralistic culture. And when we say things as we should, that Jesus Christ is the only way, that there's no other name under heaven or earth by which men will be saved, that, that will generate controversy. That will generate pushback. While at the same time, people might look at our lives and the way we order our marriages and our children and our money and our possessions and think, that looks awfully strange. That, that's, I don't understand that. I can't explain what's sort of happening there. When we live faithfully on mission, we should not be surprised when both of those things happen. There might be more seasons of one than the other and vice versa. We see this with the early church. They were, there was constant pushback against the early church by the authorities and, and, and power players, but at the same time, simultaneously, there was this fragrant aroma, this attraction, this, this God-granting of spiritual favor. And this is definitely what we see with eyes. Look at verse 15 and 16. It says, they saw all these blessings, and it says, they envied him. So there's, there, there you see the chafing. There you see the strife. They're like, get away from us. Now remember, in the days of Abimelech and Abraham, Abraham had made a treaty and had dug these wells and had peace and safety. But here they had taken advantage of Abraham's death to reclaim the territory that Abraham once had. And they stopped up his wells and they, they did everything they could to, to make sure that Abraham's descendants did not come in behind him and resettle the land. Well, when Isaac moves away from Gerar, he goes about attempting to reclaim those wells. He digs them again and renames them their original names. And we see here that Abimelech's men are sort of contesting this all along the way. So there's the friction, there's the chafing, right? But I want you to notice something about the way Isaac responded to this. Isaac did not fight. Isaac, and, and this can be a, a misunderstood word, but it's a great biblical word. It's one that Jesus commends when he said, blessed are the whom? Meek. For they shall inherit the earth. See, Isaac gave up his rights. Isaac didn't contest it. He just kept moving on until God gave him a place to lay his head in Beersheba. And what does Isaac do once he gets there? He sets up an altar and he worships the Lord. See, part of living in a culture where there is pushback or when we're on mission and there's chafing, we have to understand worth, which fights are worth fighting which fights are gospel fights? Which fights are just our preference or just our opinion or just our way? See, guys, we understand the gospel is going to be an offense no matter what. When we faithfully proclaim it and live it, it will be an offense no matter what. Just don't add to the offense by being a jerk, right, on social media. Don't, 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 don't go around being argumentative and contentious and picking political fights. Let the gospel be offense of its own. Don't join in unnecessarily to the offense, right? 
And this is, this is what Isaac does. This is what Isaac models for us. He settles down. He lives a peaceable, winsome life. I did not say fear-filled life, but a peaceable, winsome life. And it's here that God appears to him again. Verse 28, he reiterates his presence and his blessing. And now here's what's interesting. The Philistines are watching all of this. And what do they say? Verse 28, we see that the Lord has been with you. So hard for us, right? As 21st century Christians to, 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 to live in that tension. Well, Pastor Paul, are either people going to like us or they're not going to like us? Which one? Yes. Yes. And when we're experiencing both, I believe that is God giving us assurance that we are living lives leveraged for his glory. Where we have to be careful is when there's nothing. We have to be careful that we're not the church in Laodicea, where we're neither hot nor cold. And so Jesus says, I'm just going to spit you out. There's going to be chafing. But because God goes with us, there is confidence. Look at the last point and we'll be done. Verse 24, it tells us that God did indeed give Isaac a place in that land. A permanent place. For Abraham, it was a little cave in a field. For Isaac, he gives him a well. And a well, of course, was a sign of permanence in that culture. God has given room for the family of God. Brooks, I want to spend just the last couple minutes of this service just communicating to you my heart, the elder's heart, about where God has us this season, what it means for us to be living on mission, and how we believe this is a strategic window in the life of our church. Last year, we, we really began praying as a leadership, as a, as a staff team, God, we want to be faithful with the gospel. We want to pass that gospel torch. We don't want to be a church that exists for ourselves. God, would you, would, you, would you give us a vision for what it means to reach the next generation of students and, and singles and young couples and young marrieds and young, and young families with little children? God, we're a maturing congregation. God, you've entrusted a ton of stuff. You've blessed us with resources and people. Lord, we just want to be a good steward of that. And what we've seen over this past season and continue to see is just God faithfully answering those prayers. Um, People joining the church, students, couples, young families, little kids, just it's, it's an immense blessing and we give praise and honor and glory to God and say, God, yes, we are seeing this being lived out in the lives of our people. But recently we, we, have, been, we have felt compelled to pray that God, within the, there may be a church on every corner, but boy, it is we are still an underreached city. There are thousands, literally, look at the statistics, within this two to three mile radius that not only don't know the Lord, don't have a church home. Maybe they're burned out of church. Maybe they've had a bad experience. Maybe all they've known is nominal Christianity. Maybe they've never heard the gospel. But God, would you use Four Oaks in whatever way you would? Leverage our lives for 
your kingdom for those who don't know Christ. And interestingly, we've begun to see God just quietly working the way God does. We're thinking about the, the re-engage ministry that we've done and having the opportunity now not just to reach people in our church, but in fact people who are in our community, people who are in our neighborhoods, people who, who may not know Jesus. We see this happening in our student ministries where maybe students, their families aren't involved in church, but because of their child's involvement in the church, they get connected to the church and maybe for the first time introduced to Jesus Christ. And so we're asking as we come into this season, how might God use the windows that we have right now? And we, have, we think we have a great opportunity coming up with, with Holy Week, which is going to be here in about six weeks. And we're going to do some unique things this year. There's going to be some times together as God's people and reflect and celebrate. And there's also going to be some opportunities to be on mission together. And so I just want to hit on a couple of these things and we'll pray and we'll be done. On Thursday night, April 9th, we are going to have um, Monday, Thursday gatherings in homes in our community groups. Monday, Thursday is, of course, the night Jesus was in the upper room. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He washed the disciples' feet. And so we want to come together as God's people in our groups. We want to break bread. We want to, we want to serve communion together. We want to reflect upon, um, in our context of our small groups and relationships, the night that Jesus was betrayed. Then on Friday, we'll be here at 5 and 6.30, identical services, where we will have a traditional Good Friday service. It'll be an intimate, on-the-floor um, gathering where we are reflecting, where we are lamenting, where we are meditating, and where we are hoping in the death of Jesus. And then Sunday is going to be a really special day. Uh, we're going to have two services. They're totally different, though. And so figure out what you're going to do. We're going to have a sunrise service over at Shannon Lakes Park. And rain or shine, we'll figure it all out, but rain or shine. But what an awesome opportunity for, for many folks in the surrounding neighborhoods, areas, your friends, maybe you won't go to church, but they attach some significance to Easter, I'll, I'll go to a sunrise service. So this will be a shorter service, it'll be more traditional, liturgical, it'll be out in the park, um, it'll be an awesome time. And between that service and our 10 a.m. service, which will be here, we're going to serve a big breakfast in the lobby. Maple Street's going to do their thing, um, and it's going to be, we're going to, guys, the, the 10 a.m. service, just as we hear testimonies and the celebration of the resurrected life, it's going to be, I think, an incredible time in the life of our church. Here's what I would love for us to begin doing. Who would God have you bring to that or bring to one of these? As you begin to think about your life on mission, who is it that God has placed strategically in your life? Maybe it's a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, um, someone you're in school with, someone that a childhood friend that you've known forever. Maybe they wouldn't come to a regular service, but maybe, maybe on Easter they would. And we're praying that God would use this as a stake in the ground for us as we move forward into the season to say, God, what does it mean? What does it look like? for Four Oaks to be a church that lives on mission. I'm praying that God does that, not just that work in your heart, but I pray he does it in my heart as well. Let's pray.
You know, as Pastor Paul is talking about what it's like to be on mission and the call that we have to be on mission to be proclaiming the gospel, um, really thinking about who it is in our life that we are allowing the gospel to be displayed to. We have some baptisms this morning. And when you think about the baptism, what a wonderful culmination of someone who is on mission to live the gospel out, to disciple, uh, to, to really help someone understand their need for Jesus, their need for salvation, but also bringing them along. And I think about baptism being just a wonderful example of how all of that comes together when someone is proclaiming and professing publicly their faith in Jesus Christ. So we have two baptisms this morning. We have one during first service. We also have one taking place during second service. And, and if this is your first time with us, if, if baptism is something that's unfamiliar to you, just want to help you understand what you're witnessing today. You're witnessing someone publicly proclaiming their, their need for Christ and the fact that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So what, you, what you're going to see here is, is, is a symbol of that faith, of what Christ has done in their life. So th- this tank here that's full of water, th- this is not what saves a person. Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, this work that God has done is what saves. This is what symbolizes that. And so I'd like to invite Gabe Peters up. And he's going to share his testimony with us about what God has done in his life and why he wants to be baptized today. I see you are fully dressed for baptism, and I really like that. Yes. I mean, of course he's dressed, but I mean, usually there's like a bathing suit going on, but you're like the pants and everything. But yeah, take it away, man. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, again, my name's Gabe Peters. I had the blessing of growing up at Four Oaks, going to a school where faith and curriculum went hand in hand, and in a home with parents who loved God and made the Christian faith a part of our daily lives. Somewhere around eight or nine, I felt the conviction of sin and knew from teachings at school and church that Jesus died for me, and the only way to be saved was to repent of my sin and ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. So at that young age, I did just that. I can't say I remember any revelatory changes in my life or dramatic differences. As I got older, though, and began to have more experiences, my faith began to be tested. When I look back now, it's clear to me that while I had the knowledge of Christianity and could talk the talk, so to speak, um, my personal faith was really just a projection of my Christian upbringing and lacked any real substance and certainly any personal relationship with Jesus. This resulted in a weak faith where I'd often find myself drifting away from the Lord. One of the gifts God has given me is a rampant ambition that, if unchecked, can easily become all-consuming. By all-consuming, I really mean idolatry. In any stage of life and with any idol I'd create, the end goal was always the same, self-glorification. I wanted to be the best athlete for me. I wanted to have the most professional success for me. While the end goal might have always been the same, the end result was definitely always the same. An unfulfilled and discontented heart. The harder I strived, the longer I worked, the more I grasped, the further away I seemed to get from the picture of success I had built in my mind. And any amount of success I was achieving didn't matter because it was never enough. It would never have been enough. My ambition was directed squarely on building the empire of Gabe for the glory of Gabe. Between the unabated self-glorification and worldliness, personally, I was a wreck. Uh, the discontentment began to be more than, I, more than a personal problem. 
what I was always able to contain and hide internally started leaking out negatively and, and uh, affecting other parts of my life. It was right about that time when a CAT scan revealed I had stage two brain cancer in the form of a softball-sized tumor in my head. The doctor on call informed me that based on current levels of pressure in my head, I should have been de dead 48 hours prior. They said to call anyone I needed to because the only way I was leaving was on the helicopter they had already called and was on its way from Shands. Um, by God's grace and mercy, the subsequent, subsequent emergency brain surgery was successful. That event in my life gave me a newfound perspective and immediately silenced the noise and distractions I had filled my life with. God is so faithful. Even with my arrogance, self-glorification, misplaced ambition, and idolatry, in the quiet moments following my surgery and during recovery, when I was silent enough to actually hear for the first time in a long time, God whispered, let me show you a better way. My heart began to realize my sin, and as I repented of it, the process of my renewed heart began. Brokenness led to a realization of my absolute need for a Savior, not just because that's what I was taught in Sunday school, but because I needed a Savior to rescue and redeem my life. The scales fell off my eyes, and the glory of the gospel, the same one I had been taught for my entire life, became personal and real. All the weight and pressure I had put on myself to perform and succeed in a worldly sense vanished. Now, I want to run the race God has called me to run to run with intentionality in a direction that employs my ambition and demands sacrifice from someone who possesses the gospel and with such possession has the glorious responsibility to live a life reflecting the glory of Christ and sharing his truth with others. The worldliness that so consumed me before is gone as my gaze is fixated on an eternal reality. The material things of this world have lost their tastes and I'm content in resting in the reality that the only reason I'm here is to glorify God to the best of my ability. In Matthew 11, 28-30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As I daily submit my entire life to Jesus, he does not fail to fulfill his promise in these verses. As soon as I gave him control, all the weight and pressure to perform, attain, and obtain went away, and he has filled me with a freedom and contentment that nothing in this world would ever have given. God continues to work in my life, and as I submit to him and prayerfully try and discern what a redirected vertical ambition with the sole purpose of glorifying him looks like, I rest in the assurance of eternity I have through Christ Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Well, Gabe, I'd like to invite you to get into baptism. Megan and family, if you come up here as well. Kids, you get to see what Dad's about to do. Church, God often used crises in our lives, does He not, to show us our need for Him, to remind us of who we are, and gave to see the work of grace that God has done in you and your family over these. Um, these number of years to see the transformation that has just happened um, before our eyes. Um, this is what it's all about, church. This is, this is the gospel made real in someone's life. And Gabe, it's a great pleasure um, to celebrate this, this morning with you. Let me ask you these two questions. Gabe, do you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. And is it your desire now to be baptized as a public profession of your faith? Yes. 
And it's our great privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So just as Pastor Paul is talking about mission and really calling us to a place of how that lands in our life and calling us to live a life on mission, what better example and inspiration for us uh, of what living on life mission means and accomplishes than baptism. We have uh, two baptisms today. We had one during first service, and we're about to have another one here in just a moment. And so as you're reflecting upon the preached word this morning, I, I do ask you to consider this. For those of you who are trusting in Christ, you have a story. You have a story that involves you first hearing about the gospel. You have a story of, of people coming alongside you, uh, those who either told you about the gospel, but maybe that person also discipled you and brought you along the way. And so as you reflect upon that, I pray what that can do for you is just to be reminded and, and encouraged to, to really live a life this way, of really having a heart to see others come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and how you can play a part in that story with them. And so earlier we had uh, an adult get baptized in first service, uh, Gabe Peters, and he told a wonderful story of how God worked in his life. This service, I'm really excited because we have one of our youth getting baptized. And so every time you see a young person being baptized, it's a, it's a little bit different because what you see involved in that person's life is their parents, their family. Who as parents, we are, we are called to disciple our children and bring them up in the ways of the Lord. But we also see how the church comes alongside that young person to really help them understand how they are part of the kingdom of God. And so we have that this morning. I'd like to invite Stephen French and his mom and dad, Kevin and Nicole. Come on up and stand right here if you don't mind. And so we have a, a video that Stephen, that we put together, and, and Stephen can share part of his story. So let's, let's watch that right now. Hi, my name is Steve French. I am in seventh grade. I'm 12 years old, and I am from Sculpt. When I was four, I prayed the sinner's prayer, but I didn't really understand back then that I was a sinner. Uh, it took me until I was about six or seven where I had to... I guess keep going through trials um, until I eventually, after time and time, I just had to realize that I need I need God really just to yeah to get me through to get me through everything. So I'm not sure how how old I was, but uh, quite a while ago, I know my dad told me that everyone has a hole in their heart and it can only be filled with God. And uh, basically, as time goes on, that hole in my heart is filling with God. And with all the trials and depression and everything I'm going through, I learned to fill that hole more and more with God. Amen. Come on, buddy. How's the water? Not bad, right? So Stephen, as, as you uh, get in here and take a seat, um, I don't know if you saw this in the back, but 
it's going to bring tears in my eyes, but see them back there? That's your family. This is your family here. And so we are celebrating what God has done in your life. You have your parents here. And one of the things I wanted to encourage you in, and um, really what I think God wanted me to tell you this morning, is, you know, as I was praying for you about this day, what came to mind was the story of King David. And when God was choosing him as king, and, and uh, you know, he, he was someone God chose because God knew his heart. Not everybody around him saw what was in his heart. And God knew his heart, but he also had a plan for him to be a king and a warrior. And so I want you to be encouraged in the fact that not everybody, they, they don't see what God sees. God sees your heart. And so I want this to be a day that you can remember the very fact that God loves you. He has chosen you to be his son in Jesus Christ. And it is him that you can fully trust, not those around you, but God himself. And God sees the warrior that you are. I don't know if you all know this, but Stephen is uh, he's kind of a master in jujitsu. So watch out, all right? <laughs> and I, I feel like as, as smart as you are and as I interact with you, um, I mean, you might take over the world someday. We'll, we'll see. I don't know. But here's the day. We are with your parents, and, and we are here celebrating what Jesus has done in your life, what God has worked in your life. And so I just want to ask you this. Um, uh, today, are you professing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Amen. And because of that profession of faith, is it your, is it your desire to be baptized today? Amen. Well, because of your profession of faith in Christ, it is our pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on out, man.